I believe we can all say and relate to and understand. How many of you have ever lost something? Like, ever lost anything at all? Ever? In your entire natural-born life, ever lost something? Here's my favorite. I, I usually do it with my sunglasses. I'm like, where did I put my sunglasses? Looking in the car, looking in the, the drawer I keep my things in at the house, looking on my desk, look wherever, my pockets, where I keep my sunglasses here. Another thing I do is I lose my keys a lot, but I have a pretty consistent thing. I put them in a door and open it and then just leave the keys in the door. And then I'll be like, get another door, I need to open it. I'm like, oh, where are my keys? And I'll wander around and say, okay, what doors have I opened recently? I've actually done this. This is probably not good. I do this when I go to the house. I open the door, go inside, close it behind me, and my keys are hanging in the door, which seems like a safety measure. Um, I, think I, I think actually one day I left them there one night, all night, got up the next morning, let the dog out, and went, that's not good. That's not good. This didn't happen to me. This happened to a friend. Was uh, Actually, I heard it. I, I promise it didn't happen to me because, you know, the earbuds you used to have with your cell phone, um, you know, you put the earbud in and you talk, and uh, the guy was saying he was talking on the phone to somebody using an earbud and saying, I can't find my phone. I need to make a call. Where did I put it? Where did I, I can't find my phone. I can't find I can't. And, of course, it's in his pocket or on his hip or however. And we lose stuff all the time. I guess we could have fun and let you tell your lost stuff stories, but we don't have enough time for that, do we? Um, in addition to the physical things, though, today I want to talk about what have you lost maybe spiritually? Can we lose something in our spiritual life? What, what do I mean by that? I guess if I'm describing it, I would have to say, do you find yourself in your life, in your relationship with God, looking back to a time when things were different? When you might say you felt closer to God, you felt more excited about the things of God, you felt somehow more connected to the reality of who God is and and, and there was just something about the excitement or the passion of your life with God then that if you're honest today, looking back, you kind of lost that in your life. And probably for most of us, there are times, maybe it's not today, maybe right now that's not you, but there have been times in your life when you kind of lost that spiritual passion or that spiritual hunger. And I want to look at, at a passage today as we've been going through the life of Elisha that might be able to help us understand something about that. It's, it's actually one of the more unusual places, the more unusual miracles even, in Elisha's life. And it's in 1 Kings chapter 6 is where we're going to hang out. Over the last several weeks, we, we've seen some crazy things with Elisha. We saw um, when Elijah came along and invited Elisha to follow him, that Elisha burned the plows he was using to make a living, slaughtered the oxen and roasted them on the burning plows, and then left everything to follow Elisha. A few weeks ago, we saw that Elisha was called by the army to help them because they were in a bad situation. They were dehydrated on a march, had no water, and Elisha told them to dig ditches. And they dug those ditches, and miraculously, the next day, after this dehydrated army dug ditches, there was water flowing into them. Last week, we talked about a widow who was about to uh, lose her children because she owed creditors, and Elisha told her to collect jars, and we saw that, that as she collected jars, God miraculously provided that she kept pouring oil out of the little bit she had, and we learned to, to not 
worry about what we want or what we think we need, but to, to begin to work with what we have. And today we see a, a really interesting story in his life that really, as far as miracles go, are, are pretty minor. And, and first, excuse me, Second Kings chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, The company of the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. So let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole and let us build a place there for us to live. And he said, go. Then one of them said, won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha replied. And he went with them. Makes perfect sense. They go there because they're going to cut down trees. This was like an early church growth problem. Elisha had a company of prophets, just like Elijah was his mentor, Elisha began to bring other young prophets. This is might, might call it Bible college or seminary school or something like that. He brought these young prophets together. He was training them so they could be leaders for the spiritual life of Israel. And as they got together, as we just read, what's the problem? We don't have enough space. It's too crowded. We need more room. So here's our big plan. We're going to go chop down some trees. Now, I went to seminary and we never chopped down any trees. I'm kind of glad to say because that doesn't sound like a very practical thing. But for them, it was huge. It was one of those things, we need a little more room, let's go cut down some trees. Goes on in verse 4, continues and tells us this. Uh, As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh my Lord, he cried, it was borrowed. We have a problem. Can you picture the, the, the episode there. They're out there. These young men are going. They got their axes. They're whacking at trees. How many of you ever felled a tree with an axe? Excellent. I'm, I'm, uh, how many would rather use a chainsaw? Yeah, exactly. Chainsaws are great. They do most of the heavy lifting for you. But if you've ever felled a tree with an axe, you know that is serious work. And you know, as you're doing it, you're kind of hacking away. And, and I've used a hammer I've never used an axe where this happened, but as a, if you've ever used an axe and the head fall off, that's not a good thing, is it? You're swinging, you take that back swing, and... Those are the only sound effects for the day. Aren't you glad? Yes, that's the case. I've kind of had that done with a hammer. Now, this was a big deal because, what does he say? It's borrowed. Um, he's a young man, wants to be a prophet. Someone said he's like a non-profit prophet, doesn't have a lot of money. Back up. He was like a non-profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, like money you make. Prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, like a man of God. Okay, you got it now, sir? Just back up the tape. Okay, we'll just let that one go. I thought that was a pretty good one. I heard it. I fitted that in there just for you. Yes, it was just for me, if we're honest. But there you go. He doesn't have a lot of money. He had to borrow his axe. And now that he's lost the the most valuable part of the axe, not only in the sense of for the work he was doing, but also financially, iron in that day was an expensive thing. You have an iron axe head that's fallen off. Now the the axe is is totally useless, not something that he can use anymore. It's something that he has to repair, and he knows because he doesn't have a lot of money as a student, young man. There's no way I can afford to go buy iron and fix this. Now, and interesting, when you look at this, I want you to notice this. He's not really doing anything wrong, is he? We can't take this point and go, you know, this young man had some issues and God is punishing him by having his axe head fall off. In fact, if you look at it, 
he's sort of just doing the thing he's supposed to do. He's trying to be productive. He's trying to, as best he can, work hard and do the thing that he needs to do to further his career and to be the kind of person God would use. And yet in the middle of that, a bit of a tragedy happens. And Elisha's going to be called in, and miraculously, can I give away the ending? No? Miraculously, I'm going to give it away anyway. The iron axe head, a little bit later in the story, will float. Now that's a pretty impressive feat, if you can make iron float. But if you look at Elisha's life and ministry, on the grand scheme of things, this is not exactly like, wow, amazing, key, critical, miracle time. When you're talking about even some of the things we've looked at, when you're talking about an army that's about to go against an enemy and is dehydrated and has all of their, their livestock with them and they're dehydrated and they're thinking they're going to die out here waiting for the battle for Elisha to come in and provide water, that's pretty huge. That's life-saving. Then we'll get another instance in his life where a village has some poisoned water. And Elisha comes in and cleans the water up. That's, again, life-saving. It made all the difference in the world for that village. There's, there's another instance where a man has leprosy. Naaman is his name. And Elisha comes in, and miraculously, he's cured of leprosy. Changes the rest of his life, and he's able to do the thing. He was a leader. He was a wealthy man. He was a man of power. Changes all the, the, the fortunes of his life. Here we have really a, an unknown might even say relatively unimportant prophet, a student of Elisha's, that has a very simple, mundane, dare I say, problem. He has an axe that's broken. Has anybody ever broken a tooth? Was that the end of the world? It might have been, depending on what you were doing at the time, right? But for the most part, he's, this isn't his livelihood. This isn't going to make or break him. He, he will have a little bit of a debt to pay, but it's a pretty mundane miracle. And here's what what I would suggest to you, one of the things I like about this, this account shows us that God is interested in whatever it is in your life that you need his help with. It doesn't just have to be the big things. And we've talked about this in other contexts. But a lot of times, I think I said this just a week or two ago, we think, oh, there's so many much bigger problems in the world. God's got his hands full. Surely he doesn't care about this little chemistry test or this... this uh, this little situation, you know, my big toe, my toenail's ingrown. God can do more. He can ingrown toenail. I'm not going to seriously pray about an ingrown toenail. Why not? Why wouldn't you? God desires that whatever it is, we turn to him. He is a big God, yes, but he's able to help us in the everyday problems that we might feel aren't that big of a deal, but God cares enough that he will do that, and he does this for this young man through the prophet Elisha. Now, now, I want to spend the rest of our time, though, taking, I guess I have to say, sort of a, a metaphorical approach to this. Because as much as we could talk about axe heads and, and that sort of thing, I want to use the symbolism of the axe head to talk about our edge. Particularly, let's call it our spiritual edge. That which we talked about a few minutes ago. Have you ever felt like you've lost your spiritual edge? There's just something about your life spiritually with God that's not quite what it was before. And if we think about it, there have been times in all of our lives where we've lost that kind of spiritual edge. It could happen any number of ways. Sometimes it happens because as we're going through our life, we 
We have relationships. We have friendships with people that aren't um, interested in the things of God, and so they kind of push us or pull us away from the things that that um, might be more important to God. Sometimes it's about we find ourselves serving somewhere in a church or in a ministry, and then for whatever reason we decide to, to put that aside, and, and, and as we're not serving and we're not thinking about the needs of others and we're not looking for ways to meet those needs, we become more self-focused and self-centered and our edge sort of dulls a little bit. Maybe you were the kind of person that, that had a passion to pray or to read Scripture, to study, and you were, nothing would keep you from maybe getting up early or staying up late just to do those things. And as, as the demands of life become upon you, more, more in your, your lives pull at you, you begin to, to neglect those things, and you can feel that edge of your spiritual life slipping. All sorts of things could be there, but, but what I want to suggest, at least in my life is most often the case, is it's not anything huge and earth-shattering a lot of times. It's just the everyday, mundane, sort of hard work of life that can distract me from the more important things of God. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a professional teacher. That might come as a surprise to some of you who've listened to me for a while, but nonetheless. Um, in fact, my, a lot of the youth call me PC. Some of the adults do too. It's supposed to stand for Pastor Charles, I guess, uh, but some people say it stands for professional Christian. Um, I don't know if that's the case or not, but that's what somebody said. I'm not any more professional at this than you are. I'm just a regular, everyday guy. But here's what I've found in my life at times, being in church world and doing church work. And, and, and here, here's probably for you the same thing. It just looks a little different. Did you know Sunday happens every seven days? And every Sunday, some of you folks show up and sit there and look up here and expect me to have something to say. And that's a lot of pressure. That's, I mean, the, the musicians and the band and the singers could say the same thing. Sunday's coming. And, and I can tell because there's sometimes we're texting back and forth, Carlos or John and myself, okay, what are we singing this week? I don't know what we're singing this week. What do you want to sing this week? I don't know what I want to sing this week. What do you want to sing this week? I don't know. We don't uh, what, what, you know. And then it's, it's Monday. Okay, what are we going to sing? Do you have any ideas? I'm still listening to stuff. And then it's Tuesday. Have you picked anything yet? No, I haven't. I'm still listening to stuff. And on and on and on it goes. And why is it Sunday's coming? I'm thinking about what am I going to preach on? And, and, and there's that pressure that can come personally just having to get ready for every Sunday. And, and Bill Hybels, who you may have heard of because he's the pastor of uh, Willow Creek Community Church, outside of Chicago said it this way. He said in his life, he realized that what he, doing, the way he was doing the work of God was destroying the work of God in him. The way he was going about working for God, excuse me, was work, was destroying the work of God in him. And I can relate to that at times because you're, you're pushing and you're pressing and there's that deadline, that Sunday thing. There's always something to do. And it's easy to get so focused on that. I became, as, as another uh, person put it, a full-time pastor and a part-time Christian. And now you can fill in your own blank there. I mean, that's because it's my blank. It's pastor. But some of you like might say, I'm a full-time, here's one, parent and a part-time Christian. Why? Because have you noticed kids are demanding? Little crumb snatchers always want something. Don't they? Always something. We love them. Bless their hearts. 
But they're always wanting something. And parenting sometimes robs us of sleep. Amen? Keeps us up at night. Whether they're infants or whether they're a little older and they're sick, and we have to, to stay up and tend to them, and we're tired, and, and, and so we can become a full-time parent. All those demands of just parenting can make the Christian life kind of a part-time thing. We can be, and whatever your vocation is, you could fill in that too, because our vocations demand things of us. There, there are hours we have to work to earn our paychecks. There are expectations from our bosses. There are things that, that are put on us that we can be a full-time fill-in-the-blank and end up being a part-time Christian. Another way of saying we can lose our spiritual edge. We can be swinging away with that axe, and the axe head done flew in the water, and we're not nearly as effective as we once were. So what do we do? What, what's the best way to get our spiritual edge back? I am so glad you asked, because that's really the point I want to make the rest of this day. I want to follow the example of what happens in this in this passage, some of the things that we see here. The first thing I notice is when this axe head flies off, what does the young man do? Oh, my Lord, he cried out. Alas, it is borrowed. What did he do? He cried out. In this case, he cried out because the man of God, Elisha, was nearby. But for us, we could say, what's the first thing we should do when our spiritual edge is lost? We should cry out to God. We should admit, we should deal with the reality. Hey, right now, I have lost my edge, and I'm going to cry out to God and ask Him to help me. Now, notice what the young man didn't do. He's not trying to fish it out. He doesn't get a stick. He doesn't try to figure out how far out in it. He had to get something to go out there. He doesn't go in swimming and diving after it. He just drops what he's doing. He forgets about what's happening, and he cries out to God. Now, I've been in my life a time where I haven't taken that tax. I've sort of decided I'm going to try to get it back myself. I'm going to, and here's my, here's my response, typically. It's probably different than yours, or maybe you're the same as me. I don't know, but here's my response. I just say, I'm going to work harder. See, this was my one of the times in my life where I, I could say I, I kind of got away from, from my spiritual edge or times when, when I let legalism take over for me. And by that, I mean if I just behave right, God somehow is bound to bless me. And so I just redouble my efforts to behave right. I'm just going to read an extra chapter in my Bible again. I'm just going to get up a little earlier or stay up a little later, 10, 15 minutes, and, and pray. I'm going to... Say, okay, God, what can I do? What are the things? Let me let me look at the list of things. And, and, and the other thing I'll do is, by doing that, I'm comparing myself to others. That's the natural trap I fall into. I'm not just trying to do the right thing, but that legalism comes up, and I'm trying to be a better Christian than you. And if I feel like I'm a better Christian than you, then God will have no choice but to restore that spiritual edge, that sense of, of satisfaction and passion for Him. And you know what I found more often than not when you get into that trap? It doesn't get me out. Because what am I depending on? Me. What I can do. My understanding of God. My understanding of what makes God happy. And somehow thinking I can somehow keep Him obligated to me. It's like I've, I've got an axe handle with no head and I keep banging away at the tree. Have you ever done that? That hurts. 
fact, I had practical experience. It wasn't an axe. It was a hatchet. We had a, a what do you call it, fire pits. Bought one several years ago. You go get the wood from Publix or Home Depot or wherever. I said, you know, I need to, to take these large logs and kind of be able to chop them into smaller kindling. And so I bought a hatchet. And I got the hatchet, and I would start hatcheting. Is that a word? At those, those logs. I'd set them up on end, and I'd swing as hard as I could. And, and I'm thinking, man, this is hard. I'd get in, and the, the, sometimes the, the hatchet would just bounce off the top of the log. That's not supposed to happen. I've seen people do this. They take one swing, and the log breaks into 37 pieces. I see that. There's, there's got to be a. And so, you know, I, I was determined. I just swung it harder. And I swung it harder, and guess what? It embedded like a quarter inch. And then I thought, now here's what I need to do. Because I couldn't get the, the hatchet out of the log. So I just began to pick up the hatchet with the log and bang the log onto the, the porch, the concrete porch, thinking that'll work. That's extra impact. It worked harder, not smarter, right? And then there was this wonderful man you may have met by the name of Butch Grice who asked me a very important question. He said, have you ever sharpened your hatchet? I said, what do you mean? He said, I'll come by tomorrow. And he came by the next day and said, where's your hatchet? And I handed it to him. He said, I, I want to I introduce you to this. I'm about to say what this is called, and if I offend you, I'm sorry. But he said, this is called a basket file. And I'm like, I don't think it's supposed to be a dirty word, but that's what he called it. I said, what do you do with that? And he put the axe down, or the hatchet down, and he started sharpening. He said, now try. I spent, you know, 15 minutes. You know what? A sharp axe, a sharp hatchet cuts wood better. If you get nothing else out of this sermon today, I hope you get that. A few minutes. And then Butch was so kind, he said, I'm going to do you a favor, Charles. You can have this file. Because that, that hatchet's going to get dull if you keep using it. Especially the way you use it. So you'll have to sharpen it again. See, in, in our spiritual life, if all we want to do is just keep swinging away, even though we've lost our edge, we're going to be not very effective. It will be totally ineffective. And so what does this young man do? He doesn't do that. He doesn't rely on his own effort, his own ability, his own strength. No, he admits that he needs help, and he cries out. He cries out to the prophet Elisha. And then Elisha asks him an incredible question. The man of God asks in 2 Kings 6, 6, where did it fall? That's a very good question, isn't it? Where did it fall? Why would that be an important question? Well, it's that old adage, you always find the things you've lost in the last place you look for them, right? Because when you find them, you stop looking. That's what I figured out to be true. That's why when I lose something, a lot of times, maybe I leave my keys in a door. The first, I can't find my keys. I think, okay, what doors have I opened in the last you know, few minutes or a few hours, depending on how much I've been around. I go back to those doors, and usually, without fail, the last door I opened is where I'll see those keys hanging. Why? Because when you lose something, a very effective strategy is to say, okay, let me retrace my steps and see if I can figure out where I lost it. And I would suggest to you the same thing applies here. We see the man of God saying to this young man who's lost his axe head, who's lost his edge, where did it fall? Where did you lose it? It's not like it's gone. It's not like it's disappeared. It's not like it's no longer gettable. It's simply, where 
you left it, where you last saw it, tell me where it is. And that's the same thing with us. In our spiritual life, one of the things we can think about is, where did I lose my spiritual edge? I'm going to retrace my steps and see where my passion for God began to fade. To see where my hunger for God began to not be what it was. Maybe it has to do with a, a discipline that's been dropped. Maybe you were part of a small group that studied the Bible together. And you got encouragement. And you learned things in that group. And you were motivated to get back with that group to discuss what you've learned and to learn from them. And whatever happened in life, maybe just the busyness of life, pulled you away from that small group that studied the Bible together. And guess what is the result? You no longer have that encouragement. You're no longer motivated to read or to study because you don't have the accountability of the other believers that you're going to talk to on this night or that day. And so you see your passion has diminished. What is the question you ask? Where did I lose it? Well, maybe what you need to do is go back and connect with that group of believers and get back connected in a small group to find the passion that you left there. Maybe it has to do with with, uh, somebody that hurt you. Something happened in your life. You were blindsided by it. You were betrayed by it. You didn't know how to deal with it, and you allowed that situation to become unforgiveness, and unforgiveness to grow into bitterness, and bitterness to not only sour you against that other person, but to somehow sour you or to push you away from God. Scripture tells us that even in the the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, the, the Lord's Prayer as we call it, forgive us our debtors, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. For in the way you forgive others, so also you will be forgiven. You might could trace it back to that relationship, to that moment where you didn't forgive, and that root took hold. You need to go back and ask where you left it, where you where you last saw it, and go back to that point and allow that moment to be the place where you don't leave it there, but you pick it up again. And, and here's the great thing. Here's the last thing I see in this passage. Just like this young man. We need to ask for God's help so we can take it back again. Elisha's asked, asked the young man, where did it fall? Notice verses 6 and 7, it tells us, it goes on and says this. When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there, and he made the iron float. And then verse 7, lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. See, we've looked at several things over the last several weeks. We looked at the fact that that only God can send the water for the, the parched army. But they still had to dig the ditch, right? They couldn't create the miracle. They couldn't bring about the water flowing into those ditches. They just had to do what God told them to do. Last week, we said only God could multiply the oil. But the widow had to collect the jars. God will do what only he can do, but he sometimes gives us something to do. And here... God is the only one who can make an iron abscess float. But Elisha says to this young man, you've got to reach out and take it. You've got to lift it up. God made it float. You have to take that step. And so that, that is what we need to do. When we've cried out to God, when we've recognized when we've, where we've lost it, and when God miraculously begins to intervene, it's up to us to take that first step of faith. Now, here's what happens. See, we, we learn in Scripture that we have an enemy. And Jesus says this, the thief comes to do three things, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. 
And I will promise you in your life, the more passionately, the more determinedly, the more doggedly you pursue your Christian faith, you have an enemy who will do everything he can to steal and to kill and to destroy, to dull your spiritual edge. And if that is the case, if we have an enemy, we also will have that moment when we say, okay, God, I cry out to you. And okay, God, here is where I lost it. And we're just at the precipice of where we're going to reach back and get our spiritual edge, reach out and grab that floating axe head, and the voice of the enemy will say this to you. It's too late. You can't, you can't, you can't go back. You can't have it back. You've left this place. You just can't do it. Anybody here play video games when they were younger? I know we got some kids. I was in school, seminary, and we bought the Super Nintendo, the SNES. You remember that? Only the most awesome video game system ever. No? No? It was pretty awesome. And one of the video games it had was Super Mario. We love Super Mario. We would stay up late in our apartment, Elise and I, playing Super Mario. It was so much fun. It was crude as far as you would look at modern graphics and modern gameplay. It was linear. You started here and you went across the screen that way and everything just scrolled and you jumped and mushrooms and stars and, and all the other stuff. Coins. Great fun. Though. Here's the thing that, that got us. We would, we would stay up later. I would sometimes get up early um, to play. And the thing that, that was always so important were, were the save points. Now, back in the old days of video games, there were only certain points of the level where you got saved. There was a midpoint of a Mario level where you hit the little box and you got the save point. So if you were to, to die in the second half, you would start at the midpoint. And this happened so many times. It was so frustrating. You'd get through the level, and you'd be just before that point. Maybe, here's the worst part, you'd be at the, like the final boss battle in that level. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like you've played for a half hour, You've dodged all the enemies. You've jumped, and now it's just you and the boss of that level, Bowser or whoever it is. And here you go. You're going you're gonna to fight him. And, and here's the hard part. It was never easy the first time. You inevitably would lose to Bowser or whoever the first one or two or three times. But the worst part is you had to go all the way back. Like way back to the beginning of the level sometimes or or if you were lucky and had a midpoint save that you found, you had to go to the midpoint. And you had to beat all of those enemies again just to get a chance. And there was such frustration. Am I the only one that felt this way? It was not fun. Like, there's such frustration. It's like, I just spent 30 minutes of my life, and I was this close. You know, his health meter's almost down, and ah, and then I die, and I gotta start over. we take that mentality to God. And we, we listen to that voice of the enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy. And he tells us, no, 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 you don't, you don't just go back here. It's not just going to take crying out to God. It's not just going to take identifying where you lost it. It's not just going to take reaching out and picking up. No, no, you've got to go back here. You've got to keep going back. You've got to just move it. And, and you need to feel the guilt and the weight of of what you've done wrong. And the enemy's always there just sort of condemning us, heaping guilt on us, convincing us that it's not just about trusting God and allowing Him to work as only He can. And 
too often we listen to our children instead of just reaching out when God miraculously provides a floating axe head and picking up our spiritual edge right where we left it, right on the place we got off track, getting back to the point and trusting God. Because here is the thing. It is never too late to repent. Never too late. In fact, uh, in, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is speaking to seven different churches. And to one of them, he says in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, I believe. He says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent. And then here's what he says. And do the things you used to do, or do the things you did at first. That's our prescription. That's exactly what happens here in 2 Kings chapter 6. How do you get that first love back? How do you restore your spiritual edge? You, you repent. That's another way of saying cry out to God admitting you've messed up. And, and if you're going this way, you've gotten off path, it also means to turn around and go the other way. Go the way, the return to the path that you were on that was the one where your spiritual edge was there. And do the things you did. Same thing you might give to a, a married couple in a relationship where, as happens with life, sometimes the relationship isn't quite as passionate as it was. There's distance. There's the busyness of life. And, and when, when you ask that couple, well, when was the last time you went on a date together, just the two of you? They might say, oh, wow, it's been Whereas in the early days of the relationship, when the, when the edge, the passion was there, every spare minute would be focused and spent with that individual, right? So what we might say, what a marriage counselor might say is, well, think about the things that you did in your relationship. Yeah, I know. I see you proving it over there, Sonny. Good job. Is that what that was, right? Did she buy it? Okay, just checking. Now she's mortified. Excellent. Well, that's what a marriage counselor would say, you know. Go back. What were the things you were doing as a couple? Maybe you were dating more. Maybe you were spending time just the two of you. Kids come along. Who can find time just the two of us with the kids bouncing off the walls and, and the demands of that? Maybe it's finances. Now, with, with the extra pressure of, of now we have this car payment or that mortgage payment, we have to work more. I'm working overtime. I'm, I've worked the second job. We can't find as much time. Well, what's the counselor going to say? Go back and do the things you did at at first, that's what God says to us. What were the things that you were doing when you had your edge, when you felt that passion, when you felt that closeness? Go back, Jesus says, when you lose your first love. Repent and go back and do the things you did at first. And the promise of God is restoration. You know, throughout Scripture, we see this pattern where people might lose things, might turn from God, lose their, their, their edge, and God restores. Uh, in Joel chapter 2, verse 25, as, as God is speaking Israel and talking about the things that came as a, as a punishment upon them. He says to them in Joel 2.25 that if they will return, he will restore to them the years the locusts have eaten. After God sends plague and after he's punished his people and they turn back to him in faith, he says, I will restore all of that that the locusts have eaten. That's good. And, and the word for restoration in the Old Testament, the word can mean to restore so that it's better than new. It's not just, you know, bring it back, although sometimes it means to return, but a 
few times in the Old Testament that word tells us to restore so it's as good as new, even better than new. In Proverbs 6.31, Scripture tells us that when the thief steals, he'll have to repay back seven times what he took. Could you imagine if we could say to the one who's the, the spiritual thief of our joy, of our passion, the enemy himself, that he would have to repay back what he's taken seven times? We'll see that multiplied to us as we seek God. And even Job, who had an incredible story of, of devastation in his life, at the end, in, in uh, Job chapter, I believe, 42, it says the end of his story is that he had twice as much at the end as he did at the beginning. It's truly remarkable. All that he suffered and all that he lost as he went through this process of struggling with it, when he returned to God, God was faithful and restored to him twice what he started out with. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 3 through 5. This is from the message. says this, God, your God, will restore everything you lost. He'll have compassion on you. He'll come back and pick up the pieces from all the place where you were scattered. No matter how far away you end up, God, your God, will get you out of there and bring you back to the land your ancestors once possessed. It will be yours again. He will give you a good life and make you more numerous than your ancestors. The promise of God is, yes, we may lose that spiritual edge, but our God is a God who can restore that which was lost if we'll cry out to Him and go back to the place that we lost it and then trust Him to do what only He can do if we do what He asks us to do, to reach out and pick up that floating axe head, just as this young man did. Now, I don't know where you stand today. I hope I'm talking to a group of people who are saying, Pastor, I don't need that message because I have my spiritual edge. I am just as passionate and just as hot for God as I've ever been, just as devoted and seeking Him as I've ever been in my life. But I would guess, because life is what it is, that that is probably not the case. And there are people sitting in this room that say, you know what? I want to have passion for God. I want to serve Him, but it just feels so far away. It feels like when I when I sit down to pray, there's always something on my mind. When I even if I do get a few prayers out, it feels like they just bounce off the ceiling and fall back in my lap. I try to, to pick up the Bible, maybe thinking, read our, I try to, to get in a Bible study. It seems like every time I, I try, just something happens and it doesn't, doesn't go so well. And, and, I, and I mean well at first for a week or two or three or a day or two or three, but then I just kind of get back in those old patterns. Well, the, the, the scripture here in 2 Kings chapter 6 is really encouraging no longer listen to the voice of the enemy who told you, oh, that's, that's gone, that's lost, you'll never get it back. But instead, as this young man did, cry out to a God who's able to restore even seven times what was lost. Whatever the locusts have eaten and whatever the, the land is that, that sat barren, God himself miraculously at times can step in and do it through his exiles. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you today that you are a God who loves and heals and restores. We thank you, Father, that you demonstrated that love through the gift of your Son. And Lord, we thank you today that, that you might hear the prayer of your people who would admit that the axe had fallen in the water that our passion, our spiritual edge, our, our, our 
desire for the things of you has faded. Lord, I know you understand the demands of life. I know you understand all the ways that the enemy comes to steal and to kill and destroy that which you have worked in our lives. And I thank you, Lord, that as we learn in your word, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you don't come to us with condemnation, much like Elisha didn't come to this young man, berating him for being foolish or careless, but simply answered him when he called out and helped him get back that which he lost. And God, if there are people here today, it's my prayer that they might call out to you and ask you to restore that which has been lost. And that as they cry out, that you'll help them to see where it fell and give them the courage to go back, to repent, and to do the things they did at first, even as Jesus says in Revelation. And so, Lord, now as we come, I pray that in these next moments of our time of response, you would speak to your people, that you would work in our lives, and that you would begin the process of restoring for us what we may have lost. We give you now these moments. We pray in Jesus' name.